On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivy podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a girlfriend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. You're listening to a special edition of the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivy podcast called Your Last Decade. I thought it'd be fun to talk to a few friends about what life was like for them 10 years ago, how life has changed, what the year 2010 brought them, and what the last decade has brought them. Today, my guest is someone that I have a tremendous amount of respect for and has been such an encouragement to not only myself, but also my husband, Aaron, in our respective ministries. Dr. Russell Moore is on the happy hour today to talk about his last decade. Dr. Moore had a lot going on in 2010. I told him in the interview that just reading about what his life looked like 10 years ago from him made me tired. Dr. Moore and I talk about finding what is life-giving, even the midst of a stressful situation. We talk about how quarantine has really been a gift for him. The slowing down and the connecting with family has been such gifts for him. Dr. Moore is the president of the ERLC, and he shares how working in this leadership role has been a dream come true. Is brought forth lots of growth, but not without heartbreak. We talk about the importance to care for one another in and outside of the church in the demeanor that Jesus lived out for us. Here is my conversation with Dr. Moore. Dr. Moore, welcome to the happy hour. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, I remember when I was on your podcast, you cracked me up at the end because you said, you know, here I am. The Baptist preacher. The only happy hour I'm going to be at is on Jamie Ivy's podcast. And so welcome to the happy hour. And I love that so much. This is the most exciting happy hour I've ever been to in my life. So <laughs> it's my favorite. It's my favorite. Well, um, I'm happy to have you on here to talk about your last decade. And you've been a, a really kind of monumental person, even in my faith journey in the last couple of years, of just sitting under your leadership that, that you have over at the ERLC and you know, it feels good people brag on you, right? So I'll brag on you for a second. Uh, I co-host the Relevant Podcast every single mm-hmm. Friday. And we were recently discussing J.D. Greer's video that he released about Black Lives Matter. And, you know, there were some people have feelings about the Southern Baptist Convention. And, you know, yeah. they should have feelings in some ways. And everyone right. has their own feelings. But I'll tell you what, it wasn't even me, but someone else brought it up. And they're like, what's that guy's name that does stuff? And I was like, Dr. Moore. And they're like, Dr. Moore is legit. And so um, <laughs> we were bragging about you over on the uh, Relevant Podcast. So thanks for the work you've done at the ERLC. Thank you. Well, this is going back 10 years. So 2010, which let me just tell you, when I read on your form that you sent me what you were doing in 2010, I was like, I need a nap is what <laughs> I need because you were running hard. What did life look like for you in 2010? Well, you know, I hadn't really thought much about it until I got your questions and I said, okay, let me sit down and think about uh, 2010, which is actually, Maria will tell you, uh, it drives her crazy 
because I'm the guy who will always say, do you realize it has been X number of years since such and such happened? And that many years from now, we're going to be whatever age. And you know, <laughs> she, she does not like this, but yeah. I love to do it. Uh, but when I sat down and, and wrote it out, I realized, good grief, there was a lot going on. I was um, provost, chief, chief academic officer of a seminary and the dean there and a professor teaching more than a full load. And I was preaching pastor at a church, a big church at one of the campuses of a big church, taught a Sunday school class there also uh, every Sunday morning, taught a Wednesday night Bible study, a Monday night men's Bible study, was traveling all over the place. It was really, I look back on it now and I realize how exhausted I was at the time. And I didn't realize it because I don't know, I don't know if you're this way, but sometimes when you're just in the grind of things, you don't remember what normal feels like anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I think after that was, after that was over, there was sort of a crash, not in a, not in a, crazy way, but just in a sense of, I just had to rest for a good while before things powered back up. You were also parenting four children. Yes. In 2010. Am I right? Four. Then. Yes. We were parenting four children. We had adopted our oldest two children. So they would have been about eight. And then we had two more, the more typical way after that. So they were all small. And then in 2010, I had just finished a board meeting. It was really hectic. And I was on the couch, just exhausted. And Maria walked in and said, hey, I don't know if this is the time to tell you, but I'm pregnant. So we found <laughs> out that the fifth one was coming 10 years ago. So <laughs> I love that. I don't know when's a good time to bring this up, but <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. going to have another baby. You know, I think you even said that you enjoy this kind of looking back and looking ahead. And and I've noticed a lot with this episode of your last decade of people looking back, you can see things a little bit more clearly. And you've mentioned just now that you were running at a really hectic pace. At the time, did it feel doable or did you feel, I don't know that I can sustain this much longer? No, at the time, as a matter of fact, a lot of a lot of what had sort of accumulated out that looks like a lot was actually my way of, it was my way of coping with the rest of it. Mm. it that sounds weird, but mm -hmm. for me, uh, I had to find an outlet for the things that God had called me to do in a way that wasn't stifling and suffocating. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the stuff there was really life-giving. So uh, I didn't have to, I was in charge of the schedule, I scheduled myself to teach uh, mm -hmm. as much as I did because that was that was life-giving for yeah. me. And uh, the same thing, I chose to do every piece of that. I did not want to be uh, a dean, chief academic. That, that was not, I mean, and I've, not to say that I don't have ambition. I've got a lot mm -hmm. of ambition that I had to crucify, but that just wasn't one of them. Yeah. And I'd known a lot of people who said, you know, I just saw their lives and they were, you know, just really jazzed up about sitting down in accreditation meetings and mm -hmm. things like that. That it just, that's just not me. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so this was a, a lot of this was fine. And I had in the sort of central job that I had, I had an incredible amount of stress. And so the way that I coped with the stress was by adding a, a lot of life-giving things to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that that was the wrong way to do it. Yeah. I'm not sure that I would have known any other way yeah. Uh, yeah. to deal with it at the time. We're recording this in the middle of June and it's 2020 and 2020 is might go down as like the craziest year of either one of our lifetimes that we might live. Well, I shouldn't speak too soon. Like there's a lot that could happen, but it's been a little crazy and quarantine. And you were mentioning, you know, off air that it's been great and you've been productive. Are you someone who, like, I'm thinking about my husband when we first went into quarantine, the way he was kind of quote unquote coping with, I don't know, my job is already different now. So he was like creating new things and doing things. And that was life-giving for him as well. Have you found that to be true in the midst of this season? Absolutely. Uh, And not only for that reason, but because it forced an end to a lot of what was happening with my life that was killing me was just this endless sort of uh, chipping away with meetings Mm-hmm. that serve no other purpose than for people to feel like they've had a meeting, you know, right. uh, and a lot of travel and a lot of times travel that really uh, wasn't accomplishing what I would want it to, you know, mm-hmm. all, all that sort of thing. And so I couldn't keep my attention and focus enough. And, and part of it, uh, what happened to me, I realized that I was... I had to really pray through this because I was finding myself kind of getting resentful a little bit. Not, I mean, I love my team and we get along really well, but I would find that I would have some resentment toward my team members thinking what they're expecting of me is all of this, okay, do this, this hour, and then next hour, do that, and then do this and create the sort of content that, and I can't. Yeah. I can't do that. Right. And so, and I had to, to really realize it's not their fault. Yeah. This is this is my fault. Yeah. But but quarantine sort of enabled that to shut down to such a degree and in a way that could cause me to do the things that God has really gifted me to do. So I yeah. have written more in quarantine than I have at any time. I've produced more stuff. I've been involved in more stuff. And I think some of it is. Uh, Maria, my wife Maria laughs at me because I would sometimes, and I think it probably started 10 years ago in the middle of all that, I would sometimes say, wouldn't it be nice to be hospitalized with a non-serious illness? (laughs) And she would say, really? Or to say, wouldn't it be nice if there were a blizzard that would just totally immobilize everything and we're stuck here in the house? This is your fantasy, and you're not in Hawaii. <laughs> you need a you're vacation, a, yeah, a blizzard instead of Hawaii, yeah. yeah. But for me, it was, uh, the, the issue was not whether I could get away. The issue is whether people could find me. That's right. And now you're at home. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. One of the things I know, besides you know, adding another son to your family, and now you've seen boys graduate, and you've had some personal things of just growth within your family, But I would say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, maybe one of the biggest changes in the past 10 years has been with your job. And so I'd like for you to talk to me about 
when did you go come on as president of the ERLC? And honestly, it's funny because I just found out that the ERLC has been around for longer than you. Like, am I am I right about that? Hundred years, yeah. The ERLC has been around for a hundred years. Yes, and it's I never knew about it times, until. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, see, there you go. But talk to me about your job change and what led you to even want to take on the role that you currently serve in right now. You know, I wanted. I say wanted. I remember thinking as a 19-year-old, if I could have my dream job, it would be uh, president of the, it was called the Christian Life Commission then, but the ERLC. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of sad. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> I'm like, it's just weird to hear someone say their dream job at 19 and then to be living it, you know, three or it, four decades later. It is, but I think that uh, one of the things... I always kind of thought somehow that I would end up here. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know why. I just always did. And I remember in 2003, uh, when I was really young, there was a rumor going around that the then president of the ERLC was going to be moving to something else and that I would be you know, a rumored candidate for that position. Well, he didn't. And I remember thinking, oh boy, that wouldn't that have been great. And that, that sort of is gone now. That dream is gone. I look back and say, thank you, God, Mm. because if I had come into this role at that age in 2003 and 2004, I don't know what would have happened to me, but it wouldn't have been good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't have handled it then. Yeah. Can we talk about what you have like coming into this role and you might get need just give a little bit of a backstory for our listeners who are not familiar with the ARLC and mm-hmm. that it's an arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so just give us that little, like explain that to us for just a second for anyone that may not understand. But then I would love to hear from you just what has been some of the harder parts of your professional life over the past 10 years? What we do is to, we're, we're commissioned with a sort of equipping churches and families with ethical and moral decisions. So it's it's everything. I mean, we're dealing with everything from uh, adoption and foster care to end of life uh, hospitalization issues to marriage and family, you know, the whole range of that stuff. And then to speak out from that viewpoint to the larger world. So dealing with government domestically and foreign governments as well. Culture, I do a lot with the tech industry and people like that with thinking through thinking through ethical and moral decisions. So it's a lot of different things that happen under the same umbrella. What has been some of the things that you have been most surprised about in this role that you've seen that you've maybe had to deal with or that you've had to walk through with over the past decade? There's some things that... I'm going to talk about at some point that I'm not ready to talk about yet, just because I'm just not ready to yeah. process through mm-hmm. them yet. But yeah. I will say, um, I, I, I was talking to my kid's school one day. It was, you know, dad's career day or whatever. And so I had to come in. And one of the students there in the school raised his hand and said, what is it like to be in the lion's den with the secular media. So when you're on, it has to be just absolutely anxiety provoking to be on CNN. And I said, that's actually the least stressful thing that I do. The people that I deal with in the outside world 
even when they completely disagree with me, usually are people trying to do things the way that they way that they see best, and we can have really good and productive conversations. The, the, where you see the sort of red in tooth and claw kind of Darwinism is within the church, not outside the church. And I think that's what is really, I think, sometimes difficult for people. And I, I say, I think, I know. I mean, I, I, I'm on the phone all day as recently as 30 minutes ago with a pastor who is ready to quit. And the reason he's ready to quit is not because he's dealing with the, his mission field in the outside world. It's because he's dealing with some really awful things within the body of Christ. That's, that's a hard thing. And then what's harder, too, is sort of seeing behind the veil at some of the things that in this sort of role you see and, and you find what I've learned to find is that sometimes people or you know institutions that I respected and admired, it's hard to see some of that behind the veil. And I've seen a lot of uh, people that I was sort of taught to be dismissive of, you know, early on that as I came in closer to realize, wait a minute, these are the real deal people. I mean, so for instance, I remember the first time that I started sort of realizing this is working in the orphan care movement about 10 years ago, the first time that I ever did something with Rick Warren. And in the sort of uh, theological tribe uh, that, that I was in early on, Rick Warren was just sort of uh, dismissed mm-hmm. as being a church growth pragmatist or whatever. Well, he's not, uh, for one thing. Uh, he's not a market-driven uh, guy at all. And when I first went out there and was with Rick and Kay Warren and saw the theological depth of Rick and the fact that Kay is one of the smartest people that I've ever met, which I was not surprised by that, but she's also one of the most effective personal evangelists mm-hmm. with people who don't have a lot of contact with Christianity. I realized, wait a minute, these are people that I was taught to be dismissive of, and yet they're the real deal. Mm-hmm. And I have had that happen. I cannot tell you how many times where I have seen people who on paper, it was kind of, I was just reading Kierkegaard earlier today talking about the difference between the menu and the meal. And I think there's a kind of American Christianity that has the menu, which is all the I's dotted and T's crossed and everything's down on paper. And so you sort of divide people up into who gets it and who doesn't. But that doesn't have anything to do. You can starve to death with a detailed menu in front of you. Mm-hmm. question is whether or not there's anything to, to actually nourish. Yeah. And so I was really surprised. I mean, when I was at the really darkest time of my life in ministry, the people who were right there with me uh, through all of that, people like Beth Moore, that, you know, I look back when I was in my 20s and sort of in this, uh, this sort of uh, tribe, Beth Moore would have been dismissed as... Yeah. 
you know, all, all the sorts of, and I was just wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that was one of the things that the Lord has really taught me. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. How has that... I mean, that's all beautifully said. And I have examples of my own personal life as well that I could say the exact same thing of friends who are dear to me now that five years ago, people would have said, be careful. Yes. 
for of this person. How has that affected the way that you lead an organization who I won't, how has that been for you leading an organization who some of those people, like the lessons that you've learned, like the examples that you just gave me, but you would be a part of an organization that would have some people that would still feel that way. Does that explain what I'm trying to say? Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and that's me saying that, not you. How has that been for you as a leader to walk into those spaces and to God transform things in your life and you have experiences and believe and trust in people's leadership that before you might have not, how do you lead well now through that? I think one of my jobs is to connect people to each other who have more in common than they think they have in common. Yeah. So I I think uh, part of what God's called me to do is to walk between tribes sometimes and Mm -hmm. to introduce people to one another and to see their ministries uh, work together in ways that they might not have before. Because I've seen that and know that that's been where the most flourishing parts of my ministry have, have always happened, have been in those moments of I meet the sort of person at just the right time that maybe I didn't know that I needed, or maybe that somebody had said, you shouldn't have anything to do with that person. I'd I, I like to try to make that happen for other people. If you look at the life of Jesus, he's always moving forward on his mission toward the cross. He is rarely getting diverted by whatever the hubbub is around him. And when he does, he engages with it in ways that get to what God's called him to. But he's receiving criticism in stereo, which is to say he's got, you know, he goes to Zacchaeus's house and you're going to have one group of people saying, how dare you call us to Mm -hmm. repentance? Who do you think you are? And another group of people saying, how dare you go and eat with tax collectors? Mm -hmm. And so he's getting it in stereo. And I think that that's what the Christian life is going to look like. And when that starts, I think the temptation is, and I've seen this happen with a lot of people, and it again, it goes back to middle school. The temptation is to say, okay, well, let me hide myself in a particular crowd. And what that's going to mean is I can just adjust and outsource all of my thinking to the crowd so that whatever criticism I might get, it's going to be only from this group and never from this group. Mm. And so what ends up happening there is you don't have any leadership at all. You, you, just have, you just have people who are following. And I have seen that. I can't tell you how many times where I have seen people who you just see them sort of give up mm. and they move into this risk aversion where they ultimately just become a hack, you know? And they're, they're, they stop leading, they stop thinking, they stop caring. And I think that's a dangerous place to be. But I, I think it's largely driven by fear. Yeah. And, and, I, and when you're describing that kind of give up and that I'm just going to play to this one group, I think I could say as someone who has, you know, a leadership role with podcasts and author is that would be maybe one of my greatest fears is that I would be more comfortable in the safety of what just adhering to one people could give me because let's yeah. be honest, does feel safer, I would assume. It feels safer, but it it ultimately robs the people that you're trying to serve. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. then you're you're just reflecting back to them what you think they want you to say. 
Mm-hmm. And you're also not helping them because there are a lot of things that, you know, for instance, several years ago, uh, one of the big things that happened uh, while I was in this job is uh, same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. And so I hold to a traditional biblical Christian sexual ethic. And I was going around and saying to people all the time, same-sex marriage is coming to the United States of America. It's coming to your community. So you've got to figure out how to minister in that world, how to hold to what the Bible teaches, and to love people who completely disagree with you, Mm -hmm. and to explain to people who think you're crazy uh, why it is that you believe what you believe, and all those things. And I had uh, people who would say, you can't say that. And I would say, say what? And I would say, you can't say that this is, is going to happen. And I would say, why? And they would say, because that will help people with, uh, to think that it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. And I said, you don't think this is going to happen? Mm-hmm. Yes, but we can't say it. So, okay, well, that's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to equip people. Yeah. And so I want to, to do that. So I spent a lot of time going up to those sorts of decisions, saying this is coming to your community, get ready. And then when that happened, saying this isn't the end of the world. Mm. Church still stands where our mission's still here. The, the, the Bible's uh, view of marriage is resilient. And this isn't anything to panic over. And that's not what you're supposed to say either. But if you, <laughs> if you just get focused on what am I supposed to say, then you just end up being you just end up being somebody who's playing back whatever people expect rather than helping them yeah. to get ready for what it is that God's called them to do. Yeah. You know, we're in, I think, a special moment in time right now in our country. I think that there's been a lot of awakening happen over the last handful of months here with racial justice in our country. And, you know, I know you're a, a Mississippi man. And just recently in the news, the Mississippi Baptist convention. Is that, would that be the correct word for them? Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Presented a case for changing the flag of the state of Mississippi. And uh, we spoke about this actually just recently on the, on a relevant podcast. And one of the things that it made me think is I was very proud of them for being proactive there. How is leading the church right now been difficult for you in this scenario with racial justice? And it seems to be more difficult than it should be. And I mean that in the kindest way, there are some things that I kind of go, I don't understand why we're arguing about this as followers of Jesus in some areas. And then I see what just recently happened and I go, yes, this is what we need to do. We need to be on the offense. We need to be proactive. We need to be saying, you know, that we are for black lives. And so what does that leadership look like for you? It is the most controversial thing. And I've been working in this uh, area for 25 years of my life. It's the most controversial thing that I ever deal with, Hmm. bar none. And as a matter of fact, usually almost every other horrible thing that I have to deal with is actually that. Hmm. And a lot of it takes place, and it's one of the reasons why I've got such a burden for pastors and church leaders who are dealing with this, because they're dealing with this in the exact same way, because what they have is the sort of uh, bigotry and and racism that will show up in Christian context right now is a little different in some ways. In some ways, it's exactly the same as what people would deal with in the 1960s, mm-hmm. 1950s. As a matter of fact, the, the hate mail 
that my predecessor at the time would get, who was who was really strong on these issues, the hate mail he would get and the hate mail I get are really similar. Mm. You know, I mean, right down to civil rights as a Marxist uh, mm-hmm. front, mm-hmm. you know, all that yeah. that sort of stuff, or it's a distraction from the gospel, yeah. and it's gonna, you know, all that. It's, a, it's the same stuff, but it's different in one way because usually it's a small group of people by no means the majority but they will use sort of um as as one person explicitly said to me psychological warfare mm-hmm. and they do that against pastors and church leaders so what happens is they won't stand up and use racial epithets in a church business meeting but they'll say i'm just really concerned about our pastor mm-hmm. i think he might be you know uh deviating from the gospel mm-hmm. or dist- Distracting us from evangelism, these sorts of things, despite the fact that the Bible is speaking to that issue over and over and over again from Genesis to Revelation, major part of what Jesus is talking about and then what Jesus does at Pentecost. So that what uh, happens. And so a lot of times uh, what I'm trying to do, again, as recently as half hour ago, is to say to people, Sometimes you will have people who want to just give up because of those psychological warfare tactics and just leave. Mm. And so I had to say to a pastor, and I have to do this all the time, is to say, okay, how many people in your congregation are coming after you in this way? And he will say, you know, 5%, if that. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's, you know, far smaller than that. Yeah. And I would say, so why would you leave behind the 90% of the people who are with you and supportive of you and in need of you mm-hmm. in order to go start all over again yeah. <laughs> with a new mm-hmm. 10%, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The voices are louder sometimes. And I could, you know, only imagine the pressure that would be. So my, my question for you is, you know, it, it's, it's alarming to hear that the person who worked in your job, you know, before you, that the hate mail has not changed, the language hasn't changed. And this is from people who would be professing followers of Jesus. And it's confusing to me, and I'm a follower of Jesus, and it has to be confusing to people who are not followers of Jesus. What is your hope right now for the church, for people of God in this kind of and I don't want to call it a movement by any ways, but in this moment of time that we're in, where I do believe that there is more lamenting that has been coming from our white brothers and sisters than on a long time. There is more awakening yeah. and empathy and awareness and, and so many things that our brothers and sisters of the black community have been asking for decades upon decades. I'm seeing some of them. So my question for you is, where's the hope in this? I think the hope in it is uh, the fact that, first of all, you have more and more people across the board and across the spectrum who are seeing uh, this is a problem uh, and that this has a set of biblical, not just a set of biblical answers, but a way that the Bible shapes and forms our consciences and our intuitions Mm -hmm. to be able to bear one another's burdens. And so my hope is, even when I've got maybe a church that says, we don't know what to do in our community. Usually, though, you've got a church that's saying, we see this as a problem, and it's our problem, where that wouldn't have been the case when I first started out in ministry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most people would have said, the sort of thing that you still hear 
mm-hmm. with, uh, well, this is a, a sin problem, not a skin problem, and don't focus on this issue. All you need to do is to teach uh, what the gospel is, and as people get saved, this will take care of itself, which it's funny. We don't ever think that that's going to be the case with sex. Mm-hmm. Right. or with marriage, mm-hmm. or with anything else that yeah. the Bible teaches about. But somehow, right. uh, when it comes to race, that's going to be the case. Yeah. And I sense that there's a lot less of that taking place in, in churches, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Well, I'm grateful for it as well. And it's been you know difficult past couple of months, for sure, yeah. uh, for you as a church leader, for me as a Christ follower and a mom to black children. And so I just, I see some hope and it's good. And I'm, I'm thankful for voices like you who are able to speak up in the midst of difficult situations with what you're having to handle and deal with and talk through. And so I'm grateful for your leadership, not only right now in the season we're in, but last year, whatever season we're in and however many more years you get to stay there, I'll be thankful for your leadership as well. Thank you. Dr. Moore, thank you for talking about your last 10 years and for talking about the joy of what you've seen in kind of laying down those preconceived notions and entering into people's world and spaces to get to know them and see that, goodness gracious, we're so much more on the same team than people would actually realize. I'm so many scenarios. So thank you for that. Thank you. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Thank you so much for listening to this special edition of The Happy Hour, Your Last Decade. Today's show was edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper, and the music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by Quinn Pearson, and the whole thing is organized by Lindsay Sweeney. We would love it if you enjoyed this show, if you would share it with your friends. Word of mouth is the number one way that people find out about our podcast, and we thank you for that. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.